Good morning again. We are continuing our focus on an explanation as to why we have chosen Colossians 1.28 as the mission verse for our ministry. Remember, we began this series at the beginning of the year, why we exist, why we are here, and we're explaining the purpose, the objectives of the church. Our overall purpose is to glorify God. Our general purpose is to do that by continuing his ministry on earth, and we do that by the immediate purpose by evangelizing the lost and leading the saved to Christ-likeness. And we have chosen as our mission verse, Colossians 1, 28, 29. By now, I'm sure you know what that verse says, but take a look at it again. Christ in you, that's verse 27, the hope of glory. We proclaim him. Who is that him? That him is Christ, the hope of glory. See, that's the core message that we preach. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Can you say that? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Isn't that a glorious truth? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, this takes the message of Christ incarnate in the world to Christ incarnate in the believer. This is one step beyond, in fact, two steps beyond Christmas. It goes beyond Bethlehem on Christmas Day. It goes beyond Golgotha's Hill on Good Friday to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost when another gift was given, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's when the reverse incarnation took place. On Christmas Day, Jesus Christ, the Word, became flesh. On the day of Pentecost, Christ began to live within us in the Holy Spirit so that the flesh may become the Word by being Christ-like in the life. By the flesh, I mean the individual believer, not our sinful desires or passion. The day of Pentecost then was the inaugural day for the indwelling of the Spirit of God to indwell his people. The incarnate word now becomes incarnate within the believer. And the intention is that the word might be lived out through the believer. Even as Christ, as God was lived out through the man. Jesus Christ. That's the message we proclaim. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the message that leads to Christian maturity. We proclaim him so we may present everyone perfect, mature, complete in Christ Jesus. That's the core of the message we proclaim. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the message that if it is understood, if it is consented to, and if it is lived out, it leads to maturity, Christ-likeness. It allows us to define what a Christian really is with final authority. Today, simply to say someone is a Christian, you're really not saying much. Some would say a Christian is simply someone who believes a body of doctrine, become a member of the church. 
you a Christian. Is that right? Some people say that in order to become a Christian, you must be baptized or you might, must do all kinds of other things. You do these things and you become a Christian. I'm saying to you in light of the fact that so many people are claiming to be a Christian today, we have to redefine and take a look at scriptures again. And perhaps we should call people now not a Christian, but simply say they are Christian. Because the difference today in being a Christian than being Christian. If the Pharisees were alive today, they would be called a Christian. They prayed, they fasted, they read the scriptures, they did all of those things. We'd call them a Christian, but we could not call them Christian. And so we want to answer the question, what is or who is Christian? If you recall, last time we gave one, the first response to that question. And we said that being Christian is someone who has the life of Christ within them. Being Christian means that you have the life of Christ within you. You have the DNA of divinity living within you. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and what? The life. No one can be Christian without having the life of Christ within them. No one, not a creed, not a church membership, not walking down an aisle, signing a piece of paper one, two, three, four, five, twenty years ago. But having the DNA of Christ within you, that's essential. That was last week's message. Today I give you another or additional response to the question, who or what is a Christian? And it is this. A Christian is someone who displays the mind of Christ around them. Not only someone who has the life of Christ within them, but someone who displays the mind of Christ around them. No one can be Christ-like without this, the mindset of Jesus Christ. You could be a Christian without displaying the mindset of Christ, but you cannot be Christ-like without displaying it. What does this involve? How is the mind or the mindset of Christ manifested in a believer's life? Let's turn to Philippians 2. Paul gives us the answer, at least one part of the answer. And I want you to read this passage together with me. You know it well. It's one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture concerning Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. Please read along with me. If... There be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, that each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, 
thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, things in heaven, things on earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. I want you to look at that verse again, verse 5. Notice what it says. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Can we repeat that phrase? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now notice, this is not a suggestion. This is not a prayer. This is not a wish. This is a command. This is an imperative. No one who has the life of Christ within him can just dismiss this and say, this is not important to me. This is a command. Let this mind be in you which also was in Christ Jesus. The mind of Christ displayed in our lives, therefore, is an essential mark or characteristic of someone who has the life of Christ in them. Anyone who claims to have the life of Christ in them must be in some way demonstrating the mind of Christ around them. But you say, what are the characteristics of this life? Well, to go through the passage quickly, it is a self-accounting or self-reckoning life. The text says that as God... Jesus did not regard or consider or take into account the fact that he was God. The text says that he did not take into an account of remaining on equal status with God as far as authority was concerned. I'm not going to get into theological aspects of that, but that's what he's saying. The point is this. The mind of Christ demonstrated to God was a logical one, was a rational one. It didn't act without thinking. It wasn't a haphazard action for Christ to become man. He considered the cost. He reckoned the cost before he made the move. And even after he knew what the cost was, he still made the move to become man. The outward glory, the manifestation of his glory was not enough to keep Jesus Christ from becoming a man even though he knew he had to hide that glory in human flesh. The fact that he would not be seen as the authority that God the Father has while on earth, he still made a decision to become a man. He made a deliberate decision to do what he did. He faced reality. He knew what he was doing when he became a man. It was not an afterthought. He did not do it blindly. He counted the cost. A genuine Christian, a person who has the life of Christ within them, 
is a lifestyle characterized by counting the cost before he or she takes up the cross to follow Jesus. You don't get into this blindly. You don't just walk down the aisle because some friends are walking down. You just don't raise your hand and sign a piece of paper and say, that's it. No, 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 no. That might make you a Christian, but not to be Christian. You understand what I'm saying? A Christian who is someone who has the life of Christ within them. And that life is manifested in a mindset to be sure that I know why I am doing what I am doing. And regardless of the cost, I'm going to do it anyway because it's for the glory of God and it's for the good of mankind. Unselfishness is the key word here. He emptied himself. This describes the most unselfish act ever done by God the Son. You look at his death. We say that's awful, that's terrible, that's the apex of God's love demonstrated. I would agree. But think for a moment what it meant for holy God to become a man to rub shoulders with unholy people for 33 years. A God who cannot tolerate sin. A nature that strikes out automatically against sin. He became a man. And although his glory was hidden, it was still seen. But I believe that Jesus experienced just as much pain while he was alive, walking amongst men, touching them, as he did when he was being whipped and beaten physically. Because he was a holy God living amongst unholy people. He knew he had to do that, but he did it anyway. Completely and absolutely unselfish action after consideration. Mind you, he did not give up his deity. No, no, no. He was the God-man. His glory was manifested. His authority was limited to some degree. But he did not give up his deity. He was still God. But he could still feel the pain of sin. Not because he sinned, but because he see it in the lives of others. Do you remember... Jesus stood before the grave of Lazarus and he saw the scene going on over there and everybody crying and weeping and everything else. And the scripture says what? Jesus burst out into tears. Those commentators say that's because he was compassionate towards the people. But I believe if you read the text you'll see rather it's because he was looking at the consequences of sin. That's what broke his heart consequence of sin, death caused Jesus to weep and he came to the city of Jerusalem on the day we call Palm Sunday he says, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem if only you would have known that the day is your day recorded in scripture it's all clearly seen but yet you didn't know Jesus wept because of the sin of disobedience this was supremely and utterly unselfish action on his part after consideration. But his mindset was also self-humbling. Utterly self-humbling. As God, he unselfishly gave up his glory for us to become a man. But as a man, he humbled himself by taking on the role of a slave. You would think that for God, becoming a man would be humbling enough. 
but for man, as a man, he humbled himself to become a slave. King James says as a servant, but the word is slave. He became a slave. He became the lowliest of the lowly. You have people they preaching that Jesus was a rich man. That he was so rich he had to take his banker around with him. That his robe was tailor-made. It's amazing how people come up with these things. Jesus was a poor man. He became poor for us. He who knew no sin. As God, he humbled himself and became a man. But as a man, he humbled himself and became a slave. This was the lowliest attitude one can have to be that of a slave. A slave was nothing in that day. He did not take on the nature of an angel. He took the nature of a human being. A little lower. The writer of the Hebrews tells us. He took it upon himself. This humble nature. This humble status. He took on the nature, the position, the attitude of a slave. And he did so deliberately and on purpose. He did it knowing that it would cost him his power, his prestige, and even social standing. But he did it nonetheless. He did it because he knew that that's the only way we could be redeemed. He did it for us. Utter unselfishness. But his mind was also... A mind of self-sacrificing. It was a self-sacrificing mind. The text says, as a human servant, as a human servant man, Jesus further humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Notice what the text says, even the death of the cross. In other words, even the lowliest death of the cross. Death by crucifixion was for the slaves. It wasn't for the citizens. No Roman citizen was supposed to be crucified. It was the death of a slave. Jesus chose that death. The death of the cross. This is the lowest anyone could ever go. And Jesus chose to do it knowingly. And he did it for you and for me. He willingly became a slave so that he could die a slave's death on the cross for us. A death of shame and ignominy self-sacrificing his mind then was one of self-reckoning self-accounting self-humbling self-sacrificing that's the mind of Jesus Christ that's the mindset of Jesus Christ now we say oh, isn't that wonderful that he would go to such degree for us I love him so much that's fantastic we had such a great time around the Lord's table today my heart is so filled love and adoration as we focused upon him dying on the cross for us and so wonderful for us to know that but now here is where the tire hits the road this passage of scripture really wasn't written with the intention of teaching us theology directly now it is doing that but it was written to teach us how to live with one another you see in, in Philippi in this church, they had two women who were fighting. Read the scriptures, you'll see they were fighting. They had a squabble. There was division. And he's saying, uh-uh-uh. We want you to be one. We want you to be united. We want you to be thinking of the other person, not yourself. And so Jesus Christ then is presented as an example of what it means to be humble. What it means to be able to live in a way that we will not offend. 
Let's look at verse 5 again. What does it say? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is a command. Who is the command given to? The command is given to you and to me if we have the life of Christ within us. You want to be Christ-like? Start here. Right here. And it has to do with our relationship with one another. How we treat one another. It's a practical illustration of living Christ-like with other people, especially the members of the incredible body of Christ. So the Apostle Paul is saying to us who say we have the life of Christ, show that life around you. I can hear some of you saying right now, well, that's impossible. Jesus could do it because he was God. But we can't do it because we're man. That's what Pentecost is all about. Jesus becoming incarnate so we could flesh out him in our lives. That's what it's all about. I mean, the Christian isn't just joining all kinds of churches and clubs and organizations and doing all kinds of things. These are good things. But being a Christian, a person who has the life of Christ within them, means that we can have the mind of Christ demonstrated around us. You say, that's impossible. No one can do this. Well, first of all, if it's impossible, God wouldn't have commanded it. He never commands us to do anything that cannot be done. But secondly, the mind of Christ is already being demonstrated even before the cross, even before the resurrection, even before Pentecost. Take Moses. Listen to what it said about Moses. Hebrews 11. By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You notice this? He refused to be called. He made a choice. He's a prince, mind you. But as a prince, he made a choice. What is it? Verse 25. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. It was a choice. That was the mind of Christ being demonstrated in Moses. He counted the cause. He reckoned it. As a prince, he could have stayed that. He could have been Pharaoh. But he gave it all up. So that he could suffer along with the people of God. Notice why. Verse 26. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses counted the cost. And he said, rather than be a prince, rather than be a pharaoh, I am going to suffer with the people of God. I'm willing to die. He counted the cost. He said, was he willing to die for his people? But listen to this passage. Exodus 32, beginning at verse 30. It came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, this is when he was receiving the, 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 the after he received the, the commandments and the people disobeyed and everything, uh, and, and God now, his anger was towards his people. It came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up unto the Lord for adventure. I shall make an atonement for your sin. And Moses 
returned unto the Lord and said, O oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Now notice verse 32. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive this sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of the book which thou hast written. What is Moses saying? Moses is saying, Lord, I am willing to go to hell if you would save my people. I'm willing to be accursed. My name be taken out of the book of life. If you would save my people. That's sacrifice. That's an attitude of sacrifice. That's a mindset of sacrifice. Just like Jesus showed. It was done by Moses even before Pentecost. Look at Paul. In Philippians 3, it says of Paul, he says of himself, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if anyone, other man, thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. He said, listen, I've got a lot going for me as a human being. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, as Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee. This man had royal blood, he was saying, religiously speaking, in him. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Isn't that something? He was glorying in the fact that one of the major characteristics that made him to be a Christian of his day was that he was persecuting the church. When I say the church of his day, you know what I'm talking about. Touching the righteousness which he is in the, which is in the law, blameless. Now notice what he says in verse 7. But what things were gained to me? All of this stuff's on the plus side of his life. All of these things in the plus side. I have counted loss for Christ. Now they're nothing to me. Counted loss and nothing to me. For Christ. Who's Christ? He's suffering for Christ. And he's glorying in his suffering for Christ. And you say, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And do count them but dung that I might win Christ. The mind of Christ. He had all the benefits. He had all the pluses. He counted the costs. But he said, I'm going to give them up so I could suffer for Christ with the people of God. I'm self-humbling. But was he self-sacrificing? Was he willing to give his life? Well, listen to Romans chapter 9. I say the truth in Christ. This is Paul speaking. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's saying the same thing Moses said. If it were possible, I'd be willing to give my life to be a curse, to be a curse, to be separated from God, to go to hell, if it would mend the salvation of my brethren. That's the mindset of sacrifice, self-sacrifice. And now, now, here is what the Holy Spirit is saying in this passage to those who have the life of Christ within them. You and I are to have that mindset demonstrated in our eyes all the time. Mindset of sacrifice, humbling, unselfishness. Those are major characteristics of a person who has the life of Christ within them. You demonstrate the mindset of Christ around you. So we should obey, not only because it's commanded, 
Not only because it was done already, even before Pentecost, but we should do it because we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. This is this passage, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. A natural man means here an unsaved person. In context, an unsaved person is a person without the Spirit of God. And remember, we said that a believer, a true believer, is one who has the life of Christ within him. That life in Christ is in him is through the presence of the Holy Spirit. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them. Because they are spiritually understood. But he who is spiritual appraises all things. That's the one who has the spirit of God within him. Yet he himself is not understood by man. Let me tell you this. One of the most understood persons on the earth is the person who is living like Christ. No one could understand why we would make the decisions we do or you do. can't. Who would make a foolish decision the way Paul did? Who would make a foolish decision the way Moses did? Can't understand it! Because these are spiritually discernible truths. Verse 16, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? Now notice what it says. But we have the mind of Christ. I hope you get that. We have the mind of Christ. We have the mindset of Christ. Now in context here now, this means that we can understand the things of God. The mindset of Christ which is given us when we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit and regeneration enables us to understand spiritual truths the natural or unsaved person cannot. It is no use arguing the gospel or spiritual things with an unsaved person. They can't understand it. You see, that's why our message is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Because Christ in you enables us to understand the mind of Christ. The mind of God. You say, how in the world can we understand it? Because it is revealed to us through Christ, yes. But it's also revealed to us through His Word. And we can understand His Word. In fact, in the epistle of John, John calls this gift of the Holy Spirit the anointing. And he says, we have an anointing of God. That's the Holy Spirit. And he teaches all things. We don't need anyone to teach us spiritual things. It's the Holy Spirit who does it. Look at verse 9 in this chapter. You'll see what I'm talking about. 1 Corinthians 2, backing up. He says, as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. But to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Now, many times when people go to this passage, they end with verse 9. They say, God has these wonderful things for us, and it's not being revealed to us. That's not true. It's just the opposite. It has been revealed to those who have the mind of Christ. It has been. We can understand it. It's amazing how people get the scripture so goofed up. We can understand all these heavy stuff. We can understand all these deep things. What you're telling me, somehow you're not manifesting the mind of Christ. 
Because the mind of Christ has been given to us so we could understand the deep things of God. Look at the passage again, verse 10. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. And where is the Spirit? The Spirit of God is living within us. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Why? That we might know the things freely given to us by God. There's nothing in the Word of God a Christian cannot believe or understand. If it wasn't given for us to understand, then it will be the deep things of God. We leave that with him. But the scripture tells us that he has given us things. He's freely given us things to understand in his word. And we should revel in them. The big problem is not too many professing Christians want to do what is necessary to know about God. And that is what? To study the word of God. Now we have received in the spirit of the world, but not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely, freely given to us by God. It's the things given to us. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but by those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thought with spiritual words. It's a fantastic passage of scripture. But we don't have Christians dwelling into this, delving into this, going into this, digging into this. They're on the surface. But those who have the mind of Christ should be able to understand these things freely given of God to us to understand because we have the mind of Christ because the Spirit of God dwells in us. And so the mindset of Christ should be demonstrated in the Christian's life through diligent study of the Word of God. Let me read your passage. 2 Timothy. Be diligent. The King James says, study to show yourself. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a vacationer. Does it say that? As a workman. You've got to work. Rightly dividing the word of truth, the King James says. Accurately handling the word of God. Do you know why so many so-called Christians cannot handle the word of God? Because they don't study it. They don't study it. Accurately handling the word of God. The word of truth. But you've got to be diligent. You've got to study it. But things have been revealed for us. And the Spirit of God there is waiting for us to get into the word so the mind of Christ might be able to grasp the truth that he has written. And when he speaks to us, we hear his voice speaking to us in and through the word. Had some students giving testimony the other night in the class in Telios, and they were talking about these same things. He says, sometimes get into the Word, and, and it gets so wonderful when the Spirit of God begins to speak to you. You wonder if you can take it all in. But yet we have Christians, when they open the Word, they're tired already. Just to open the page. They're tired already. Another command, be diligent. Listen to Hebrew 5, verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, he's speaking to Corinthians who probably were five to six years old in the faith. That's all. Probably five or six years, if that old, in the faith. For by this time you ought to be teachers. 
Oh, the people have only been in Christ for five or six years. You are to be teachers. But now you have need again for someone to teach you. What? The elementary principles of the oracles of God. For us today, that Christians mean teaching about Jesus died for us. Jesus is raised again for us. Wonderful truths, but that's elementary truths. You must be baptized. That's elementary truths. You should pray. That's elementary truths. You should read the Bible. That's elementary truths. You should witness. That's elementary truths. But that's all Christians want to hear about. It's amazing. That's all they want to hear. And they make it sound so pious. I just want to hear the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Now that's wonderful truth, but it's elementary. It goes much deeper. He says, now you have come to need milk and not solid food. Yeah, how does it look for a five or six-year-old child to be taking milk from a bottle? That's a, many Christians are like that today. They come to church with the milk bottle. They want milk. They get a nice piece of steak for them, you know. Too heavy, man. I can't digest that. Notice now. You have come to need milk and not food. But now, by the way, it is a need, though. And the need should be met. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's the baby. In other words, those who are always just looking for the milk, it's because you have not been taught the meat of God's word. And all you're used to is the elementary things. And so that's all you want to get. Paul says that's not the way to go. You don't grow to maturity like that, is what he's saying. Notice what he says. Solid food is for the mature. Now, as I say here in Corinthians, mean anybody who has been saved for five or six years. I know some individuals who profess to be saved for 20, 25, 30 years and they're still babes. That's a shame. Who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil through practice. Practice of what? Practice of being fed with the meat of God's word. Their senses are trained to discern evil from good. That's a lot of us. Don't know what to do here. Don't be able to make the decision here. And the Bible clearly teaches what's, what is sin and what is not and why everything else. But Christians, I can't find God's will. As though God is trying to hide his will. It's all in the word. But the reason why is because Christians have not moved toward maturity. They want the elementary things. That's all they want. That's all they desire. And they do not go to Christian maturity. You see, that's why I say to you, we proclaim Christ in you, the hope of glory. Because that leads to Christian maturity. Paul says, because he wants to present everyone mature in Christ. How is he going to do that? By proclaiming Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is Christ doing in you? What is he supposed to do in you? If you are a Christian, you have the life of Christ within you. And you will manifest, demonstrate, display the mind of Christ around you. And so our message then is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is a message that resonates with genuine Christians. Why? Because it's a message that tells how we can become Christ-like. And 
And notice, unselfishness is a part of it. Self-sacrifice is a part of it. Self-humbling is a part of it. All of that, with knowing the Word of God, with studying the Word of God, all of that demonstrates that we have the life of Christ within us and the mind of Christ is being displayed around us. That's Christ in you, the hope of glory. We cannot live this Christian life. Now listen carefully. We cannot live the Christ-like life ourselves. That's why the good news for the Christian, the good, the good news, the gospel for the Christian is Christ is in you. And why is he there? To live his life in and through you. Now get this. I want you to get this. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We cannot be Christ like ourselves. That's why he had to come, become incarnate within us. So he could live the life in and through us. It is only Christ in us who can live Christ through us. That's why we must have the DNA of Christ within us. For the life of Christ in us is only there for one reason. And that is to manifest the life of Christ through us. And the mindset of Jesus Christ is a major characteristic of this lifestyle. See, that's why after my surgery, especially when I can speak louder, I've got to give you another response to the question, who or what is Christian? Yes, to be Christian means to have the life of Christ within you. To be Christian means to have the mind, to manifest the mindset of Christ around you. But also, to be Christian, you must manifest the power of Christ through you. The power of Christ through you. That's why Christ is in us. To give us the mindset, his own mindset. Through a study of the word of God, we see what God is like, we see what he is like, we come to understand his mind. And we see what he wants us to do. And you know what? He wants us to be Christ-like. Now hold on, hold on. Let me make it even a little bit more difficult. He wants us to be God-like. Can we do that? Yes. How? Because the Christian is not only one who has the life of Christ within him and displays the mindset of Christ around him, but a Christian is also is one who manifests the power of Christ through him. That's my message for next time. But I want you to know, and you know that right now, this simply means that all of self has to go in your life. All of self has to go. I doing this, I doing that. Unselfishness has to go. I ain't going to do that because nobody thanking me for it. I ain't going to do that because it's too tough. I ain't going to do that because I got to get up 6 o'clock in the morning to do that. I ain't going to do that because it make me stay too long at church. That's not the mindset of Christ. Can we do this? Yes, we can. Because not only do we have the mindset of Christ already, but we also have the power of Christ within us. And so actually what Paul is saying in Philippians 2 is simply this. You have the mind of Christ? Use it. Father, thank you for your word. Pray that you might use it to bring about the purpose for which you have sent it forth today. 
Maybe as a result we see believers truly seeking to be Christ-like by becoming mature in the faith because we have the mind of Christ within us. And all of God's people said,